0: Good morning, Grace. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 6, would you? And I'd like to pray. I know we just prayed in that song, but I'd like to pray for us as we come to God's word. Lord, with your word open now, we're going to hear Jesus' words himself from a sermon he preached to crowds, needy crowds. We're needy this morning too, Lord. And Lord, even as we just prayed, give us this day our daily bread. We know that we need more than just food, uh, but your word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. And so with your word this morning, I pray, Lord, you would feed us with today's bread that we need to nourish us, uh, to grow our faith, to grow our hope, to grow the fullness of joy we know in you. We thank you for Jesus and his word. Amen. So like I said, right now we're gonna be in the next four Sundays, uh, finishing Luke chapter six, which is an extended sermon that Jesus preached. So if you have a red letter Bible, these words are in red. These are the very words of Jesus that Luke has for us. And as I've been prayerfully meditating on them this last couple of weeks, uh, anticipating today, uh, a few reasons have struck me as to why maybe you need to hear Jesus' words this morning. These aren't all the reasons. There might be other reasons that God has for you to hear these words, but here's just a few that might be true. Maybe you trust him. You are seeking to live a life of faith, to live faithfully. For God, but it's harder than you imagined. Maybe in particular in this season. Maybe you can relate to Asaph. He wrote some Psalms. 73 in particular is a brutally honest psalm that he wrote. And here was his problem. He looked around him as he was trying to live faithfully and he sees all these godless people living it up, having an easy life, having all the food that they can eat, all the finer things and life just seems to be going great for them and meanwhile, he is not experiencing that. And he says to God, truly God is good to those who are pure in heart, right? But that's not what he sees and he says, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. If you can relate to Asaph, Jesus' words are really encouraging this morning for you. But maybe you trust Jesus and your life is going fine right now, but your battle is fear and worry. You're an anxious person. And and the what-ifs of worst-case scenarios haunt you and they steal your joy right now even though right now as you're walking with the Lord things are good maybe you look around you're aware of some of the things that other folks at Grace here godly people are enduring major losses that they're grieving this past year deep waters and 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 your fear is what if I was thinking Psalm 112 it's this triumphant psalm it says, The righteous will never be moved. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. And maybe you want to believe that would be you, but you're not sure. Jesus' words are encouraging for you this morning. Maybe you haven't trusted Jesus. Maybe you don't trust Jesus. You're here checking this out or maybe you're watching on our live stream and you're not sure. You feel like generally your life is going okay and you don't really see why you need Jesus. You've got some impressive accomplishments so far in your life. Life is comfortable. You're just checking off those things on the bucket list and you just don't know where really Jesus fits in there. Or maybe... You think you've trusted Jesus. In actuality, he's just an accessory in your life. He just fits in a nice little corner. He's like an accent rug in your life. And it's nice for like two hours a week to gather with some friendly community here and sing some uplifting songs. And and then you go back to the rest of your week that practically speaking, doesn't bear any evidence that Jesus has authority in your life and that he makes a real difference at all. And if either of those are are you, then what Jesus has to say this morning might be hard to hear at first, but it's loving. So let's look at what Jesus has to say. First, Luke gives us the setting. Verses 17 through 19, he describes this scene where Jesus teaches. And and I want to just read this first and picture this because I think it's going to really help us listen well when we get to Jesus' actual words. So Luke 6, 17 through 19. And he, Jesus, came down with them and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. Wow. If you've grown up in the church and you've you've read the Bible a lot and the Gospels a lot, those kind of scenes, those little passing kind of just descriptive scenes might be so common to you that they've lost their sense of, of striking you with awe. But that is a stunning setting here for Jesus' teaching if you think about it here he is there's three groups now here he had gone up on the mountain to pray all night with a bunch of disciples in the morning he selected 12 of them we heard last week and he names them apostles which means they're gonna play a particular special role as eyewitnesses to his life and death and resurrection and their testimony to those things will be the foundation for God's kingdom to spread and grow throughout the world so now he's come down to this level place and the 12 are there and all these disciples disciples, but notice there's some other people here now. There's this great multitude from all the surrounding area of Judea and Jerusalem, but even as far as Tyre and Sidon, which are these two wealthy seaport cities. So that means in this crowd, likely we have some folks who aren't Jews, they're Gentiles, they're outsiders who have come because of Jesus spreading reputation, that no one speaks like this man. And he does miracles like no other. And it's also likely we have some wealthy people here in the crowd, not just uh, many of the poor disciples, but some wealthy folks. And Luke tells us why they've come. He says they've come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And what struck me is that even though Luke presents them in that order, to come to hear Jesus and to be healed, notice where Jesus starts. He begins with healing before he even opens his mouth. Those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. The crowd presses in, sought to touch him. Power came out from him and healed them all. He didn't heal most. There weren't some cases that were too difficult for him. Power came out and healed them all. When you read that Jesus healed them all, one thing that teaches you about Jesus is there is not a single effect of the curse that is beyond his power to fix and to heal and to restore. We can't doubt his power. Power came out and healed them all. So I want us to picture now as you imagine that crowd, everyone who came was healed and now they sit down and Jesus stands to teach them. Can you imagine sort of a sense among this crowd? Can you imagine the picture? I was trying to imagine the sorts of healings we read in the gospels that probably were all taking place there. So I picture some parents there possibly who had carried their sick children to Jesus, maybe with fever, maybe unconscious and now they're sitting with their kids in their lap ready to hear what Jesus has to say. There were likely lepers who had come, who had been healed, and after years of social ostracism, had maybe felt hugs for the first time in years with tears of joy. And now they're sitting with the crowd not off to the side. There may have been people who up until that day were carried daily to be sat at the gate of whatever city they lived in to beg for alms because they couldn't walk or they couldn't see. And now they're seeing and leaping for joy. And we're specifically told that people who had been troubled by evil spirits had been cured. Men and women who were sitting there with a clear head, in their right mind, able to hear Jesus' words. Let's make it even more concrete. Imagine if at the beginning of this service this morning, Jesus had walked in and we'd all gathered around him and power had come out of him to heal all of us. Every single illness and ailment and chronic pain and disability and disease and mental health vanished in this room. And we're laughing and weeping and excited, and then we all sit down and Jesus walks up to this pulpit to open his mouth. I imagine we'd be pretty eager to hear what he had to say. Do you think that if Jesus then stood and he made you promises that sounded too good to be true, having seen what you just saw, might be more encouraged to believe that he can deliver the goods? And if he warned you of ways that lead to death, you may be more inclined to believe that not only does he know what's best, but he wants what's best for you. The question I want to ask you is, when you listen to Jesus' words, do you remember who it is that's speaking to you? And what he can do? And what he wants for you? Because when we don't and we, we forget this constantly, we forget who's speaking to us and Jesus' words kind of come down here in this realm of things that we can take or leave based on whether or not they resonate with how I feel or see things. But when we remember who Jesus is that's speaking to us, his words are elevated again to their appropriate place and they bear weight. So let's hear this morning what Jesus has to say for us with a clear view of who he is. So let's back, look back at the text. We're just going to spend time in six verses this morning, or 7, 20 through 26. But if you look in your Bible, from verse 20 all the way to verse 49, the end of the chapter, is what we call the Sermon on the Plain, because it says at the beginning that he stood on a level place. So he's, he's in this wide open place, and he, and he teaches to this crowd. And we're We're gonna look just at these first seven verses, like I said, but if you know this section of the Bible and you know the gospel of Matthew, you'll know that much of what Luke records here, Matthew records in his gospel that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew has more content than what Luke includes here, and even some of the same material that they both record aren't worded exactly in the same ways and, and, and give some different emphases So we might ask, well, how do these relate to each other, and then how should we listen to Luke's account of Jesus' teaching? Well, I think the two most likely things are, one, they may be recording the same teaching occasion, but they're both summarizing, right? We we know even Matthew's account, if you read it out loud right now, it's probably shorter than what Jesus actually shared, right? Right? So they're both summarizing the the, the substance of what Jesus had, had communicated to the crowds. And it could be that they each, as they set out to write their gospel with their own unique purposes and audience in mind, wanted to emphasize certain points that Jesus made distinctly from the other It could also just be, though, that they're recording two different teaching occasions. I mean, we know of Jesus that he went from town to town to town teaching and with the same ultimate message, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And it shouldn't surprise us to think that he probably taught the same parables in many places and he probably used the same illustrations in many places and gave the same exhortations in many places. And depending on who he was talking to, that may have sounded a bit different. I was thinking this morning about uh, years ago, uh, Betsy and I, my wife, and Eric and Donna, Taunus and Uncle Sonny, uh, spent five weeks in India ministering in churches around the New Delhi area. And I must have heard Eric preach Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, so did you, Sonny, at least a dozen times. And if you know Eric, it was mostly the same sermon each time. I mean it was the same passage and he had the same outline and probably by the end of the trip if Eric had dropped over dead Sonny and I could have gone up and managed our way through it but in different churches some churches we were in with some very wealthy believers and some places we were at was with the poorest of the poor and at different times in different places he applied and he and he preached the same passage with some different focus and I think that's probably what's going on with Luke and Matthew and their recounting of Jesus teaching Why why am I making that point? It's for this. I think that we need to read Luke's account on its own. Matthew's account is helpful, especially where there's things that are similar, but I think that we need to not impose the Sermon on the Mount on the Sermon on the Plain here because Luke has some specific intention in mind for what he has recounted for us here. So here's how it breaks down. The Sermon on the Plain kind of comes in three sections and we're gonna spend four Sundays. This morning, the first section, he gives these prophetic pronouncements of blessing upon some and woe in the future to others. Then in the middle, we get these sort of exhortations about how we should love others and about judgment, judging one another. Jason's going to preach next week and then Darren Early the following Sunday, those those two subsections. And then the final bit are two parables that both call everyone there listening, they draw a line and they call for a a response, that these words are not something to go, oh, interesting, but they demand a response. So let's look at our section this morning. I want to read it, verses 20 to 26. Here we go. And notice to whom Jesus addresses these words, particularly these opening words. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples. Now those who weren't his disciples are here too, and they're listening, but he speaks to his disciples and he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, Your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. It doesn't say this here, but I imagine Jesus' eyes maybe raising up a little bit more widely, and he says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. (laughs) All right, before the main outline here, just I want to point out two of Luke's favorite themes in his gospel that show up again here in this little section. The first theme is Jesus' winnowing fork. Do you remember that Sunday that Eric preached John the Baptist is preparing the people for Jesus and he says in Luke 3, 17 that Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus is gonna come and in his teaching and his call to repent and believe, um, he is gonna be separating wheat from chaff. He's gonna be dividing and the dividing line is going to be between those who receive and believe what he says and act on it and those who ignore or reject what he says, which is a rejection of him. And we see this again here, don't we? Again, it's, it's two category language. He puts everybody into two camps. There's the blessed and there's those who are deserving of woe or to be pitied. Now, let's be clear. Here's what doesn't determine whether a person is blessed or is to be pitied. It's not their circumstances, even though that might seem at first read like it is, but here's what I mean. Jesus, I don't think, is saying that poverty, hunger, weeping, and persecution for his sake are qualifications for receiving Jesus' blessing. I think the blessings are words of assurance and comfort that he's speaking to his disciples who are experiencing those things or who will one day experience those things. That's different. That means that these aren't exhortations to be poor, to be hungry, to, be, uh, to weep, and to be persecuted. They're words that are saying to his disciples, God sees your suffering. Your place in his kingdom is secure. And in the end, I will bring complete and lasting consolation. In a similar way then, when we get to the woes, it's not that wealth and food and laughter and acceptance by others are necessarily disqualifiers from the kingdom of God in themselves but as we're going to see it's the reducing life to the pursuit and the obtaining of those things apart from Jesus as the end that is worthy of woe but we will see in the gospel of Luke rich people enter the kingdom of heaven like Zacchaeus now his life radically changes when he enters into the kingdom of God but he doesn't suddenly become poor It may be that riches and all that come with it might anesthetize us and make it harder for us to feel our desperate need and dependence upon God and the way that he's made back to him through Jesus, but it doesn't necessarily disqualify a person from the kingdom of God. And in the same way, poverty and all that comes with it may help a person feel their desperate need for God, but it doesn't guarantee it. One other observation, woe isn't so much a pronouncement of condemnation. There's still time for those to whom Jesus says woe. It's more like saying, I feel sorry for you who seek only to be rich now and full now and happy now and loved by others now in the short term. So what determines whether a person's blessed or worthy of woe? Well, look at the text. The blessed ones are those who have identified themselves with the Son of Man, verse 22. They're the ones who are living for his sake. That's why it says he lifted his eyes on his disciples. They're his disciples. They're the ones who have chosen to follow him, who have received, uh, acted positively toward that invitation, and he likens them to the prophets of previous generations, the people who believed God and stood for his word. And the ones who deserve woe are the ones who don't follow Jesus, whose lives are not lived on account of the Son of Man, but on account of their own earthly kingdom building. And they're likened to false prophets. So the real question that you should ask yourself this morning is not, am I rich or poor? Am I full uh, or hungry or weeping or laughing, etc.? But it should be, where do I stand with Jesus? What have I done with him and his call to repent and trust my entire life to Him. If you have done that, you know what category you're in. Blessed, Jesus says. And if you have not done that, Jesus is saying to you this morning Woe to you, it will not end well for you, if that continues to be your pursuit. Second favorite theme of Luke we see here is the great reversal in wrestling. A reversal is where the athlete on the bottom who's get, getting pinned to the mat suddenly turns things over and is on the top and the one who was current, previously on the top is now on the bottom. And Luke has, has talked about this from the very beginning. In, in, in uh, Luke 1, when Mary is told that she's gonna bear the Son of God in her womb and she bursts into praise, listen to what she said is gonna happen through this son that she's gonna have. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and he's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. There's a great reversal coming in the future, Jesus says. So here's our outline here this morning. Here's the two questions that are gonna frame how I want us to, 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 to take in what Jesus is saying the questions aren't who are blessed and who deserve woe, but why are those who receive Jesus and live for his sake blessed? And why are those who reject Jesus and live for their own sake to be pitied? That's what Jesus answers here. And I want us to flip back and forth between those two questions because I think if we look at each blessing and its corresponding woe highlights the blessing. All right, so reason number one, those who receive Jesus and live for him are blessed. It's the the second half of verse 20. Here's his point. He says to his disciples that no earthly lack or loss can ever rob you of your permanent place in God's kingdom. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. To say to a person, yours is the kingdom of God, is to say, you belong to god you have a place under his kingly authority and care you are a citizen of his kingdom which is another way of saying to you you yours is the king he's your king he's you. He has graciously taken you under the wings of his loving, sovereign care and has made an unbreakable covenant commitment with incredible promises to you that he will not break. And the point is no earthly loss or lack you will ever experience can rob you of that. It can never separate you from it, Paul said. Romans 8.35 He lists some of the losses and lacks that you may experience in this life, but they can't separate you from God's kingdom. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, the lack of food, nakedness, the lack of clothing, danger, the lack of safety, sword, the end of your life, nothing. That's an incredible promise. And I love he says yours is the kingdom of God. He doesn't say blessed are you who are poor because yours will be the kingdom of God. He's saying to these poor, weeping, hungry, hated followers, even right now in your moment of lack, yours is the kingdom. Your belonging has already begun. Christian, in this very moment of your deepest loss and lack, you can say with confidence, mine is the kingdom right now. It's yours now both in that you have obtained a promise of the future that's ironclad and God will not renege on, but it's also yours because at this very moment, God is presently active in your life to ensure that you will see that reward one day. Romans eight twenty eight reminds you, God is now at this very moment dedicating his sovereign authority, his perfect wisdom, all his compassionate care to work all things together for your good. To ensure that all your light momentary affliction, which I know does not feel light or momentary, but he is right now at this very moment in a thousand ways that you might not see, working to ensure that all that light momentary affliction will prepare for you an eternal glory beyond all comparison. That's already begun for you. To have the kingdom of God and nothing else is to have everything. That's what Jesus is saying. That sounds too good to be true. But that's why Paul described himself, 2 Corinthians 6, as one having nothing and yet possessing everything. That's the first reason those who receive Jesus are blessed. No earthly lack or loss can rob you of your secure, present, permanent place in God's kingdom under his care. But there's a corresponding woe, on the other hand, in verse 24 first reason that those who reject Jesus and and settle for living for their own kingdoms are to be pitied is is the reverse. Any earthly abundance or gain you may enjoy now can't compare to what you will have forfeited. Look at, he says, woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. I read a literal translation this week. It said, for you have cashed in on your consolation. And I immediately thought of Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> oh, parents, you understand, the hated Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, we, have, we try so hard to avoid that, but you look in your kids' eyes, and they're just, so Elijah, my youngest, a couple of years ago, there was a night where uh, Betsy and, and Lily and Levi were going to be gone. It was just the two of us, and he was like, Dad, can we go to Chuck E. Cheese? So I take him over to Chuck E. Cheese and La Marada, and go in and buy him a big cup full of tokens and there's all these machines that you can earn tickets, right? Because there's this reward prize center and they've got all these incredible things up on the wall that you will never win, <laughs> right? It's just bait, And then there's that counter, the glass counter, and that's all the stuff that you have any hope of possibly purchasing. So we played, like two hours we're in there, and he's got this giant Ziploc bag filled just with wads of tickets, and we take it to this machine where you feed them in, and it sucks them all in, and it counts them up like a slot machine. It's like teaching your kid at age seven to want to go to a casino. It's like, and you get this ticket, and it's like, you have 540 tickets, and you take it to the counter, and I can remember his eyes were like, oh. And he gets up and the guy's like, okay, you can have anything in this section right here. And it's like a rubber finger puppet or a bracelet with a poop emoji on it, you know, or, you know, whatever, just this, this garbage stuff, a Super ball or a pencil sharpener. And I remember seeing sort of the light go out of his eyes. <laughs> There's this loss of innocence happens at Chuck E. Cheese. Like, it's so unfair. It promises so much, Charles Edward Cheese. But here's the point. Jesus is essentially saying to you, don't live for the real world equivalent of Chuck E. Cheese tickets. Because in reality, things that look really promising to us, a wall of diplomas and plaques acknowledging your vocational accomplishments and a bunch of really sweet vacations to exotic locations that you've checked off your bucket list and you've, you've humble bragged about on Instagram, and a nice house in a gated community with two paid off cars in the garage and a really um, substantial retirement package that you can enjoy leisure and recreation to your fullest in your golden years. There's nothing wrong with those, any of those things per se. But Jesus is looking you in the eye and leveling with you and saying, if you make those things the ultimate things, the ends, they become your saviors with a lowercase s, and they're lousy at it. And there will come a day where you will realize all of that was, no, that was worth no more than Chuck E. Cheese tickets. Jesus says, Woe to you. There's still time. Don't cash in on your consolation now. Reason number two, that those who receive Jesus, live for him, are blessed. Look at verse 21. He says, all your earthly groanings, physical and emotional, are temporary, and one day they'll be eclipsed with eternal satisfaction and joy. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You notice how those are subsets of those who are poor. Those are the physical and emotional experiences that often come with loss and lack. Hunger is the physical experience of the lack of food, the unmet longing to satisfy my stomach as God intended it. But there are other unsatisfied longings that we will face in this life. Good God-given desires that will go unmet possibly. You might experience the unsatisfied longing to be married. That's a good desire. You might Feel the, the, the hunger for friendship in your life at times. Go unsatisfied, or the desire for children, or for physical strength or health. And physical groaning comes with emotional groaning, does it, doesn't it? Often? Weeping is part of the groaning with the hunger. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's promising there will be a great reversal. When all our physical and emotional groanings will be swallowed up with eternal joy and satisfaction. I was reminded of Psalm 126, verse 5, says, Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Now, that Psalm was talking about imagining the day that God took his people from exile and brought them back into the land. And if those tears they sowed would reap shouts of joy in that day, how much more on the day when Jesus returns and the dead are raised in Christ and we live with him forever in a new heavens, a new earth, where there is no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow, sadness, death, decay, forever. That's why Paul also said that disciples can be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing. That's not an oxymoron. Corresponding woe, look at verse 25. All your earthly pleasures, for those who reject Jesus and live simply for this kingdom now, all your earthly pleasures, physical and emotional, are fleeting and one day they'll be eclipsed by eternal hunger and grief. One day those who are full now will be hungry. One day those who laugh now will mourn and weep, he says. And I was reminded of 2 Thessalonians 1. Listen to this breathtaking description Paul gives for what lies in store for those who don't know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Thinking about that sentence this week and it struck me that all the fullness and laughter that can be enjoyed in this life by someone who is rejecting Jesus is only because of the common grace of God. It's only because even for the one who denies God, they're living in a world that he has not removed his gracious presence from, and even though it's a broken world under a curse, it's still oozing with good things that come from God as he upholds this universe. Can you imagine then what existence must be like on the day when God permanently and eternally removes the totality of his presence and the glory of his might from your existence? I I can't comprehend the vacuum of emptiness if God removed every last shred of his common grace from my life and your life. That's why Jesus says, woe to you. Jesus described that experience as weeping, and gnashing of teeth, eternal regret. Last reason why those who receive Jesus and live for his sake are blessed, verse 22 and 23. He says, all earthly rejection for Jesus' sake will be rewarded with the eternal acceptance of God. So, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's pretty bad. See, the progression goes from hatred in the heart to actually making a difference in your life, excluding you from things and reviling you, slandering you, and actually even calling you who follow Jesus the evil ones. And notice that the first three say, blessed are you who? This one says, blessed are you when? It Seems to not be an If. A disciple may or may not experience poverty, hunger, and significant weeping in their life. But it seems like Jesus is saying, all who identify with me publicly will to one degree or another experience these things. That's why he says that you are identifying yourself with the prophets of old, because they always spoke and stood for God, no matter how unpopular or costly. And I have to admit, I think this may be the one that we are least prepared to accept or believe. It's certainly the one that we are maybe least desirous to experience. And it may be the one we're most likely to see on the rise in our day. But Jesus doesn't hide the fact that if we follow him, we shouldn't be expect, expect to be treated differently than the world treated him And notice as the the words intensify with how we will be treated for Jesus' sake, the blessing intensifies. He says rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. That's a bit dramatic. What reason could we possibly have to rejoice in that day? He says it very simply. Your reward is great in heaven. And your reward is great in heaven because you get God. That's what makes the reward great is we get God himself. We get the approval and eternal acceptance of the only one whose opinion matters. Listen to this from Revelation 22. It describes our great reward. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. That's a picture of permanent acceptance and belonging. We are his. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And the mention of Jesus as the lamb in that eternal scene is a eternal reminder of why any of us could ever hope to have the approval or acceptance of God, right? Because he was the lamb who was slain. He was the one, Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And his poverty included hunger, and his poverty included weeping, deep guttural weeping in the garden as he anticipated what he was going to face to earn our acceptance with God at the cross and on the cross he was hated and excluded and reviled and he hung there on the cross with crowds literally spurning his name as evil saying you deserve to be up there because you were a blasphemer you have misrepresented God you have claimed to be God and you're a liar And he did that for the joy set before him of eternal blessing that he would give to millions by faith in his name. That could be you. If that's you this morning, you are truly blessed. Which leads to the one last corresponding woe. And I'm not gonna really take much time because he doesn't give it much time. The last reason why those who reject Jesus live for their own kingdoms are to be pitied should be obvious at this point because all worldly approval will give way to the eternal rejection of God. As good as worldly approval might feel for the moment, it's fleeting. You know, in in the Old Testament, it always looked good for the false prophets for the short term. A king liked what they had to say. They sort of secured their place in his good graces for a moment, but it always went bad for the false prophets in the long term. And Jesus doesn't even give a corresponding phrase here for behold, something like your punishment will be great in hell or something like that. But I don't think he has to. The point is made. The forfeit of all future heavenly reward says it all. So here's where I want us to end. I want us to take heart, Grace. If you this morning have recognized, I think I'm in the category of woes. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to switch categories and to humble yourself, to get off the throne of your own life and let Jesus take his rightful place there and it begins by turning from sin and coming to him and thanking him for his, his rejection at the cross for your sake and entering into now his kingdom where his spirit dwells in you and begins to work out that good work starting today. And if you are already among the blessed but having a hard time believing it this morning, we need to leave taking heart. I want to close just reminding you, here are the three things that are true for you if you are in Jesus this morning. No earthly lack or loss can ever rob you of your place in God's kingdom. With Jesus, all your earthly groaning, physical and emotional, will end one day. And there will be an eternal future of joy and satisfaction so long that you will forget there were things called pain and sorrow and hunger and poverty. And finally, any earthly rejection that you might endure in this life for Jesus' sake is nothing compared to what he endured for you and your sake. And he's eager to reward you greatly with the eternal acceptance of God that he earned. On your behalf. The hymn, Be Thou My Vision, has a verse that I think summarizes how we take these truths, these blessings, and we and we we trust them. Riches we heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou our inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only, first in our hearts, High King of Heaven, our treasure thou art let me pray lord we believe that help our unbelief continue to free our hearts from the love of money and the and the desire of riches help us to see how hollow they are how fleeting they are lord free us from fear of man and the desire the the, the craving for the approval of man at the end of the day that's empty praise Enlarge our vision for the inheritance that's before us, that's beginning now, that we're already beginning to experience now. Help us to taste it now as we anticipate it then. And Lord Jesus, help us to keep you on the throne of our hearts in a way that lasts beyond Sunday morning at church but into every day and moment and trial that's gonna come in our our life this week and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.